in the last few podcasts, I've been trying to make sense of something that actually doesn't seem to make much sense. For centuries, historians and students of history have wrestled with this conundrum. How was it that a man known for his loyalty, his sense of justice, good lordship, and indeed his all-round common sense, ended up seizing the throne from his 12-year-old nephew? For many contemporaries, it was such a sudden and shocking event that they too struggled to come to terms with it. Even today, many folk cannot believe that loyal Gloucester could possibly have done it. But the reality is that he did seize power. And what everyone studying this period has to accept is that Richard's seizure of power, leading to his coronation on the 6th of July 1483, was not some accident or an act of God, nor was it the fault of others. It was the end product of a series of steps that Richard himself took between April and July. That sequence of steps, remember, began with the arrest of Rivers, Grey and Vaughan in April, which caught everyone out, not just Earl Rivers. According to Richard, he was attempting to prevent a crisis, and his explanation was generally accepted at face value, exactly because of his reputation. But as we have seen, it is doubtful that Richard's suggested Woodville plot ever existed. If it did, it was certainly over by the time Rivers was in prison and Queen Elizabeth was in sanctuary. Yet, only a month and a half later, in mid-June, Richard was sending secret and urgent letters north, asking for more troops. Shortly afterwards came the summary execution of Hastings and the arrest of Lord Stanley, followed a few days later by the acquisition of Edward V's younger brother Richard from sanctuary in Westminster. For those at court, these last events were worrying and unsettling in themselves, but then came a second, much longer, postponement of Edward V's coronation and the shock announcement that neither Edward nor his brother Richard were in fact the legitimate heirs. Blimey, who saw that coming? Well, hardly anyone it seems. The revelations that the new king was illegitimate came out of the blue on the 22nd of June. It has always seemed to many, me included, ridiculously convenient that this evidence came to light at the very moment that Richard needed justification for removing his nephews from the succession. Of course, it could have been a coincidence, stranger things have happened, but I just can't believe it, and nor did his contemporaries. People at court were not stupid. Influenced by rumour and self-interest, yes, but not stupid. The fact that these allegations surfaced only days after Hastings' execution was not lost on anyone. Let us not forget that there were far more men of influence in London than usual because of Edward's impending coronation. Such men wrote letters to their relatives and clients in the country and those that survive support the conclusion that opinion about Gloucester was shifting. Where there had been confidence in a safe pair of hands, now there was at best confusion and at worst suspicion. But let's take a look at the allegations. There is some evidence that at first a suggestion was made 
that Edward the Fourth himself was illegitimate, and therefore so were his sons. Aside from the fact that this called into question the honour of Richard's still-living mother, Cecily Neville, it was a weak argument, because there was no conceivable evidence to back it up. That horse would not run, so a better idea was needed. And Richard found one thanks to Bishop Robert Stillington. According to Stillington, it was Edward V and his brother Richard who were illegitimate, because their father, Edward IV, had entered into a pre-contract of marriage with someone else, Lady Eleanor Butler, before the marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. Now, in case you don't know, a pre-contract was binding under canon, that is, church law. So as far as the church was concerned, if there had been such a pre-contract, then Edward IV could not legally marry anyone else. It didn't matter that the said Eleanor Butler was dead. Any children of Edward's second marriage would still be viewed as illegitimate. Now a lot of hot air and ink has been expended about the existence of this pre-contract. Edward's reputation with women suggested that it was not impossible. The secrecy of his later Woodville marriage muddied the water a bit more. But just how reliable was Stillington? This whole question has been argued into oblivion. But let's go wild for a moment and assume that it was true. That there was indeed evidence of a pre-contract that would make the two princes illegitimate under canon law. What should have happened was as follows. A church court should have heard the evidence in June-July 1483 and made a decision on the case. However, even if that court confirmed the illegitimacy, there was nothing to dictate that Edward V had to be deposed. Parliament, for example, simply had to declare that Edward was the rightful king, and that by law he was legitimate. Once crowned and anointed by God, his illegitimacy became irrelevant. The whole pre-contract argument is therefore a complete waste of breath and energy. Because even if true, it did not mean that Edward V had to be removed from the succession at all. So folks, here's the nub of it. And it's a point which is far too often glossed over. Had the King's uncle, Richard of Gloucester, chosen to, he could easily have enabled Edward V to succeed to the throne. Richard was the man with all the power at that moment. What happened was entirely in his hands, but instead of endorsing his nephew, he decided to take the throne himself. He had a choice, and he chose to remove Edward, which for me means that the revelation of the pre-contract, whether genuine or not, must simply have been the means he devised to depose his nephew. So, back we go to the conundrum. Why? It's been said by some historians that Richard's actions were proactive, not reactive. In other words, he retained the initiative throughout the crisis. It's certainly true that his actions put everyone else on the back foot. But for me, his actions do not appear well planned, and more often than not, they came as reactions to the turn of events. In fact, so many of his actions were unplanned that you have to dismiss the notion that he always intended to claim the throne. 
If we examine carefully the steps Richard took to the throne, it's quite clear that he could not have intended all of them before he left York in April 1483. This argument could apply to most of the steps, but is particularly obvious in the case of Hastings. Richard would not have intended, or indeed expected, to execute Hastings, who in the event of a Woodville plot should have been Richard's chief ally, since he was the man who warned Richard about the possibility in the first place. Secondly, why did he wait until mid-June to call for extra men if he already intended to take the throne? Given that he cited a Woodville plot as justification, he surely would have had reinforcements closer than Yorkshire. Richard had shown in the past that he could be single-minded, thoughtful and organised. But the train of events from April to July 1483 shows little evidence of forward planning at all. In the summer of 1483, Richard was making it up as he went along. As I see it, Richard's actions only make sense if we see them as unplanned and reactive. It was back of an envelope stuff. Alright, let's assume that was the case. It reads like this. Richard, fearing Woodville influence with the new king, lashed out to remove the leading Woodvilles, rivers, etc. Though the council supported Richard, they wanted to press ahead with Edward's coronation, since the boy was only a couple of years from maturity, and a protector would not then be required. It would have become clear to Richard very early in May that once the king was crowned, he would not be able to control him. He would not be protector, but merely one of many voices in the council. So he delayed the coronation till later in June, to give himself more time. Not much opposition to that. But alarm bells would have been ringing for Richard when he heard that George Neville had died on the 4th of May. Remember that Richard's Neville estates would not necessarily go to his son, but to other Neville heirs, if George died. Richard's whole position as the greatest northern magnate would then depend upon the whim of Edward V, a youth he had already alienated beyond repair. So what was he to do about it then? Remember how ruthless Richard had already been in the past where his own landed interests were concerned. He was quite capable of browbeating old women into giving him their lands. Was it so different to take a child's inheritance to protect his own? I don't think so. At some point during May, or at the very latest early June, Richard decided that to preserve himself and his inheritance, the young Edward V would have to go. From that moment on, there was some evidence of planning. What, he asked himself, would need to happen if he was to take the throne from his nephew? Well, you could probably come up with the to-do list yourself. Step 1. Send home for more men in case of opposition. Step 2. Informally start to sound out Buckingham, Hastings, Stanley and Lord Howard on how they might react. Whoops, Hastings could be a problem, maybe even Stanley. Step 3. Remove any potential opponents quickly. For example, Hastings, who as captain of Calais, might present a genuine obstacle. Oh, and execute Rivers and Co. Step 4. Get Prince Richard out of sanctuary, otherwise he could claim the throne 
when his brother Edward V was deposed. Step 5. Postpone the coronation again and come up with a good reason why neither Edward nor his brother should be king. That could be a tricky one. Finally, step 6. Get crowned ASAP. And of course, it all worked perfectly and his potential opponents fell like dominoes. By the time Richard's extra soldiers from the north began to arrive in London in early July, he scarcely needed them. His own coronation was only days away, and so on the 6th of July, 1483, England had a new king. The trouble was, the previous one, Edward V, was still alive. Though Richard of Gloucester was invited to become king by a group of lords and commons, that group, reminiscent of those who acclaimed his brother Edward in 1461, had no legal authority at all. Edward V had not been deposed by Parliament or any other legitimate body, but had simply been shouldered aside by a more powerful man. If you recall, after his acclamation in 1461, Edward IV still had a great deal to do to secure his kingdom, including a great battle to win at Towton. No one could have known better than Richard how fragile his position now was. He was king, but the suddenness of it all meant that he still had a job to do if he was to establish himself firmly upon the throne. There were still a few loose ends to be tied up.